Good morning. So today's our last day in the book of Ruth, and next week I'll be um, beginning the book of Esther. Um, this is the Crossways Journal. Um, it's on Amazon for six bucks. How, how many have been using the one like this for Esther? Or excuse me, for Ruth. How many have been using the Ruth one? And, and if, have you found it helpful? Raise your hand if you thought it was a good idea to take notes and stuff. Well, I think it's a good idea when you're following the sermon, you can take notes and then you can read afterwards, um, maybe do your devotions from that too. But uh, again, we're going to Esther next week and you can, you'll have time to buy them on Amazon um, if you care to. And Debbie, would you like this one from Esther? All right. We'll make sure that ends up in your hands. So let's begin with a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus to bring you praise and to worship you. We who were once excluded from your grace and your covenant have been included and not only welcomed, but we have been made sons and daughters through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege that we don't take lightly, but we will praise you for through our lifetime and through eternity. Thank you for the lessons that you teach us in every scripture that we examine. And now we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would animate these words and our hearts to receive them, um, that we are nurtured and that we grow through it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in April of 1986, the world's worst nuclear disaster took place in Ukraine, just outside the city of Pripyat. Um, a late night safety test went horribly wrong and then the world has experienced, like I said, the worst nuclear accident of all times. Dozens of people were killed instantly, thousands died after the fact. Um, the disaster released 400 times as much radiation into the atmosphere as that which happened during the um, Hiroshima bomb. But few people actually realize how bad it could have been. Um, the day of the fire, the firemen started pumping water into the reactor in order to cool the reactor down. But it caused the water to flood down into the basement where the control valves were, and it flooded the basement with radioactive water. Um, they soon realized that the reactor was burning so hot that it was melting down through the concrete floor and becoming this molten lava-like substance. Uh, they needed to be able to drain the bubbler valves through these valves that were only located in the basement, which meant somebody had to go down into the flooded basement full of radioactive water and turn these valves on. The problem was, had that molten lava-like stuff that was burning through the cement reach that water, it would have created a huge uh, explosion. Uh, it would have sent, there were 20 million liters of water down there in that basement, and if the molten lava had reached that, it would have set off an explosion that would have equaled three to five megatons, which would have blown up the rest of the plant and left much of Europe uninhabitable for thousands of years. It was a catastrophe of unimaginable scale unless somebody went down there to open those valves. And their three men entered in to volunteer for this suicide mission. They risked their lives. Um, 
that was considered uh, that you couldn't possibly survive because of the radiation, yet they went down there because they saw that there was something far more at stake here than their own lives. They, they saw that there was something that involved millions of, of other people. And that's what the text before us is all about. Really, that's what the book of Ruth is all about. Here's Boaz, a guy who has nothing personally to gain from what he's asked to do. He risks everything. He risks all that he has and all that he is only because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't think of himself. He's not considering his own personal advantages. He puts everything on the line for others. You, you can't study the book of Ruth and especially this final chapter without seeing the centrality of Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. That it, not only does he take on the responsibility to rescue Ruth, but he also rescues Naomi as well. And just like our redeemer, Jesus, he's the one who takes the initiative to bring this about. He's the one who pays the price. He's the one who publicly claims his own. He's the one who provides a name and inheritance um, when before there was just a ruin and empty one, emptiness. He's the one who restores, in this case, Naomi um, to her rightful place. All of this, um, since Ruth and Naomi, who were the benefactors of all of his grace, could have done nothing to help their situation. They are entirely dependent on Boaz's covenant faithfulness and his personal compassion as the kinsman redeemer. And in this way, grace meets and answers an otherwise unsolvable problem posed by the situation that Naomi finds in the days of Judges. Take your Bible and turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, where we last left off. Ruth 4, 1. While you're turning there, you may remember that in chapter 1, <clears throat> we're introduced to Ruth, and we're, we're introduced to Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and her two boys, Malon and Kilion. There's a famine in Judah, and so they uh, leave for better land. They, they make their way to Moab. No sooner are they in Moab when Elimelech dies, leaves Naomi as a widow, and her two sons predictably marry outside of the faith. They marry Orpah and Ruth. You remember that Orpah returns back to her family, back to her people, and more importantly, back to her gods, whereas Ruth makes this wonderful pronouncement, which is really the, the centerpiece of the whole book, when she says, do not urge me to leave you or forsake you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Um, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will bury. And then she uses a covenant um, prescription, if you will. She says, may the Lord do so to me also, if anything but death parts you from me. So it's a beautiful declaration, not only of Ruth's intention to go with Naomi, but also her acceptance of Naomi's gods to be her own. Then we get to chapter 2, and we're introduced to Bethlehem. Naomi and Ruth come back totally desolate to Bethlehem. They do the only thing that desolate widows can do. They glean, well, Ruth does, gleans in the field. She could eke out a living for the day, possibly up to three days, but you're not going to get rich gleanings. It's only a, 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 an existence, a, a menial existence at that. Now, you remember back in chapter 1, <coughs> when <coughs> Naomi is sending Ruth and Orpah back home, 
she really desires that the, these two daughters-in-laws, whom she loves, should marry, should be included, should have a, a covering over them. So Ruth is praying somehow, excuse me, Naomi is praying somehow that Ruth would find a husband for herself. Now in chapter 2, Naomi just so happens to go out winnowing in the field of Boaz. She just so happens to be there when Boaz just so happens to show up. And Boaz just so happens to take an interest in Ruth for no reason. She's a foreigner. She's just somebody strange to him, and he asks who she is. And for some reason, it just so happens in the providence of God that Boaz extends a particular interest in her, and he's, he treats her favorably. Naomi hears about that, and she's got great plans. She wants to orchestrate a marriage between her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and this wonderful kinsman redeemer, Boaz. So in chapter 3, Naomi is organizing this romantic engagement. And she does everything she can to scheme for a romantic evening, the result of which was not a uh, midnight marriage, and it was not really a romantic romantic evening. However, it did give Ruth the opportunity to ask Boaz if he would extend his covering over Ruth by marrying her and providing a child for Naomi so that Naomi's family, Elimelech's family, wouldn't be forgotten in Bethlehem. So she's asking not for herself, she's asking for her mother-in-law, Naomi, if Boaz would marry her, Ruth, and provide this child, he would act not only as the redeemer, but also he would act as the, the, the leverate, the uh, brother-in-law marriage, so that Naomi's family would continue. Now, Boaz regards this as an extremely uh, generous and honorable, merciful request from Ruth, and he agrees to do it. He says, I'll get right on it. But first, there's a consideration. There's this first right of refusal of the next of kin. We'll have to ask him first. Then they spend the rest of the night in close proximity, but it is not a romantic interlude. Ruth sleeps at Boaz's feet until morning. Then she gets up. Boaz gives her a gift of some grain to take back to um, Naomi. And at that point, Naomi assures her Boaz is a good man. He'll take care of this right away. That brings us to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Naomi's prediction has been true. Um, Boaz is a man of action. He, um, we get the impression that he immediately goes from the threshing floor with Ruth and he goes up to Bethlehem and there he enters into the city gates. The, the gates there are the center of community life, kind of like the courtyards of medieval Europe. So at the gate, the elders would dispense justice. Um, they would hear different cases heard. They would... Um, 
witnessed different contracts that were, that were exchanged. Uh, they would, people would gather there just to exchange news about what's going on. So it was obviously a place to, to meet someone if you were looking for someone because everybody had to pass through or show up at the gate. So Boaz, in this case, is looking for one particular character. He's looking for the nearest kinsman redeemer, the one who has first right of refusal over Elimelech's property. And it just so happens, under God's providential care, that just then the man comes down the road. And apparently in this inconsequential, inconsequential moment, um, Boaz asks the man to, to set aside. Uh, he involves this nearer kinsman, and he tells him, you have this first right of refusal, and he persuades him to uh, listen to the situation and then decide, do you want to, to buy this property which belonged to our brother Elimelech? And probably not literally brother, but close relative. So this guy is closer in relation to Elimelech. That's why he has first right of refusal. He's the nearer kinsman redeemer. And much to our surprise, because we want to, we're, we're rooting for Ruth and Boaz at this point, and much to our surprise, this nearer kinsman redeemer thinks it over and he thinks, this is a pretty good deal. And he agrees to do it. And we're like, what? So someone other than Boaz is, is going to get the land. And from his point of view, although it's going to cost him some money up front, he sees this as being a great financial deal because eventually he's going to get the land for next to nothing. It's all going to come, come back to him. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. So Boaz masterfully reveals that not only do you have the responsibility as the goel, the, the kinsman redeemer, but you also have the responsibility as the levir. The lever, levir eight is the law of the brother-in-law. So if a man died without having any children, his brother, the man's brother, was to father a child with his wife so that his name, his progeny's inheritance wouldn't die out. So Boaz says, okay, here's the deal. You can buy the land, but you also get the woman with it. Well, he, 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 he thought he'd have to take care of Naomi. I mean, it was her land, so he understands that. But he's thinking, you, you know, Naomi's too old to have any children. So the, the probability of this land going to a legitimate heir is, is next to nothing. So what's going to happen is he's going to buy the land. Naomi will not have a legitimate heir because both of her sons are dead. And eventually, since Naomi won't have a legitimate heir for Elimelech, the land will revert to him. So he'll get the land pretty much for just the price of taking care of Naomi. The property would revert to him alone. But now as Boaz points out, technically this, this property is somewhat entangled. There's a few problems with just buying the property outright because when Elimelech died, 
the property then went to Elimelech's two sons, Malon and Kilion, and one of them has a, a, a widow, Ruth, who's here in Bethlehem right now. So not only do you have the responsibility to buy the land as the kinsman redeemer, you have the responsibility as the levier, the leverate marriage, to father a child with her so that Elimelech's family will continue. Well, immediately he's thinking, this is not such a good deal because it's highly probable that Ruth, who's of childbearing age, would have a son. And if this woman were to have the son, he would become the rightful inheritor of the land and everything that went with it. He would lose not only his initial investment of buying the property, he would lose everything because the son would then become the legal inheritor. He, but, but Boaz is reminding him that with the... Uh, with the, the privilege of buying the land comes the responsibility of raising a son for the dead man's family. So his previous enthusiasm is suddenly um, stopped in its tracks. And the reason he gives is he says, it'll cost too much. Basically, that's what he's saying. He'll incur financial obligations. I'll uh, jeopardize my own children's inheritance. Before, he was thinking there's no way he can lose. Now he's thinking there's no way he can win because if Ruth has a son, he loses everything. The property would go back to him. And we get the distinct impression at this point <coughs> that uh, Boaz feels a little smug about it, don't you think? <laughs> you know, because uh, he realizes that there's a great personal cost at being the kinsman redeemer. But for Boaz, he's willing to pay that price, even though there's nothing in it for him. He buys the land. He doesn't get the land. He gets the women only to take care of, but eventually he loses everything. But Boaz is willing to do this because he's a man who has a gracious heart. He's full of grace. He's willing to take on this suicide mission like the Chernobyl volunteers. He, he realizes he's, he's going to do that even though there's nothing in it for him because it's the right thing to do. Now, how often is it that we similarly evaluate our own actions towards Christ, like, like sharing your faith or being gracious to somebody else, and we evaluate this as this nearer kinsman redeemer did because we're asking, what's in it for me? How am I going to benefit from this? Will, will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy doing it? What's it going to cost me? And in thinking it through like that, when the Lord asks us to do something, we're making the same mistake as this nearer unnamed kinsman redeemer makes because we're leaving God completely out of the equation. We're only seeing is what personal benefit will, will I get? And whenever we leave God out of the equation, like this man did, we come up with, it doesn't benefit me personally, I'm not going to do it. And what blessings we have lost because of our unwillingness to be obedient. Boaz, on the other hand, has, a, has an open heart for the poor. And when we first saw this, when he meets Ruth, She's just somebody he doesn't know. She's just some unknown poor person gleaning in his field. He has nothing to benefit by showing kindness to Ruth. And yet, he, he shows an amazing grace and generosity. He shows that what a, what a cheerful giver he really is. So, likewise, Boaz 
was not marrying Ruth in this case because there's a romance involved and she, he thinks she's a good-looking chick. He's marrying her for the same reason she's marrying him, and that is because it's the honorable thing to do. It benefits Naomi. It doesn't benefit Ruth or Boaz. He's entering into this relationship so that she could have a son who would inherit the property from him so that she could have a family and a name that would belong to Elimelech, not him. And he makes it very clear that this transaction is not about him, it's about others. He, he's meeting the needs of Ruth and Naomi, he's, he's preserving the remembrance of their, their dead husbands, um, but he sees this as something that God is orchestrating, and though he can't benefit from this, he understands it's the right thing to do. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and it was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So verse 7 explains this, this odd uh, action of, of getting something notarized, and that is that the person would take his sandal off in the presence of witnesses, the ten elders in this case, he takes his sandal off and he hands it to the person that he's passing on ownership. Probably this uh, custom originated from the exchange of property, that if you if you owned the property, you had the right to walk on it anywhere you wanted to, any time you wanted to. It was your property. You could travel over it freely, only you, because you were the owner of it. But handing the sandals that you were giving up that freedom. Well, in time, it just became the, the notarizing way of any, of any exchange, any agreement, not just with the transfer of, of property. So now once this kinsman redeemer, the nearer one, the unnamed one, waves his right, Boaz immediately, where we are, uh, verse 6, no, verse 9, Boaz immediately assumes these responsibilities for himself. So the important part of this, verse 9 and 10, is this is the resolution to the whole book, what takes place right now. Boaz, assuming this responsibility, he's acting as the kinsman redeemer, he's acting completely out of his grace and kindness, and he makes two solemn affirmations before these witnesses. One, I will accept the responsibility of kinsman redeemer with regard to Elimelech's property, which has technically passed on to Malon and Kilion, and two, that he agrees to marry Ruth so that the family name might not die out and so that the family might not be extinguished from the town's record. Again, according to custom then, the firstborn child of Ruth and Boaz would be Malon's son, not Boaz's son. And he would be the, the one who would be in line with Elimelech's family heritage. So very wisely, 
Boaz solicits the affirmation of this transaction from the witnesses' presence. Their affirmation then um, is, is really the heart of this transaction because once this sandal has been exchanged and the witnesses say, we are witnesses, this contract cannot be nullified because of a procedural error or a loop in, loophole in the law. Whatever, we all understand what took place right here. So twice Boaz says to the onlookers, you are witnesses today. So he's, he's getting this legal certification of a binding contract. Verse 11, <coughs> then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So the elders and the people that are witnessing all this, the people hanging out here, they, they, are, they pray that there would be a family line that would spring forward from the union of Booth and, Booth and Roaz, <laughs> Ruth and Boaz, not only to continue the line of Elimelech, but also to be a blessing to Ruth and Boaz's, that Boaz's family would also continue. And so they, they pray that, that God would bless them just as he blessed the, the, the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob, through his two wives, Rachel and Leah. Now, interestingly, that uh, there is a parallel here in the very first verses of the New Testament as Matthew is giving a genealogy here. We see that God does answer this prayer super abundantly beyond all that they could ever ask or imagine. And the same thing is true of his second request, which begins with, with Bethlehem, that, that Bethlehem, would, that their prosperity would, and fame would grow in Bethlehem, because we remember that it's in Bethlehem that Samuel comes to anoint the new king who is a shepherd boy, David. It is to Bethlehem that the prophet Micah would later proclaim, Pass for you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little in the land, in the, among the tribes of Judah, out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from old, who are from everlasting, which we say every Christmas time. That's where this is happening. And it's to Bethlehem, as it just so happens, that a young man who lives in Nazareth, Joseph, is bringing his bride-to-be Mary to Bethlehem because it just so happens that all of the world was, was consigned by Caesar Augustus to register for a new tax. And it just so happens that while they're in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world is born. In verse 12, it says, May your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Perez is also the product of a levirate marriage. So Perez and Ruth have that in common. She's, Perez is the ancestor of many of the people in Bethlehem who are witnessing this as, she, as Perez also is the ancestor of Boaz who's making this, this contract. They, they're, they're all descendants of Perez. And they look forward to 
um, Elimelech's line prospering. They look forward to Boaz's line prospering. They're asking for a, a, a famous dynasty to come forth from this. And perhaps the most uh, striking aspect here is uh, this blessing between uh, uh, Boaz and Ruth. There's anal- there is an analogy being drawn here, which is easy to miss, paralleling the lives of Ruth and Tamar, who's, who is Judah's, uh, not his wife, but the, the, Judah and Tamar are the ones who father Perez. So Tamar's story is listed for us in Genesis uh, chapter 38. Like Ruth, Tamar is an outsider to the covenant community. Tamar is a Canaanite, Ruth is a Moabite. Um, they're, they're not part of God's covenant community. They both marry um, into the family under very doubtful circumstances. Um, Both of them lost their husbands and had no child. Both Ruth and Tamar dressed up to pursue a future for themselves and a child, but that's about where the similarity ends because um, Ruth has a child legitimately through marriage where Tamar has a child illegitimately through her father-in-law she dresses up as a prostitute and seduces, well, I don't know if she seduces him. He seemed pretty willing, but <laughs> Tamar uh, tricks the father-in-law, uh, who's more than willing to sleep with a prostitute, but it, it ends up in both cases with children who are children of the promise, one illegitimately and one legitimately. But in either case, um, God is providentially uh, playing a part in in playing this this hand out. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So remember clear back at the beginning when, when Boaz notices that Ruth has come to come under the wings of God. And now he prays for her he becomes the answer because now Ruth comes under Boaz's wings as uh, she enters into this marriage relationship. He becomes the answer to his own prayer that she would be covered under the almighty wings of God. And then there's this birth of the first son who is Obed. And the congratulations go, first of all, to Naomi because now Naomi has a kinsman redeemer of her own. Now Naomi has the sustainer of her life. Naomi has um, the, uh, she becomes the primary focus as Obed now is sharing this motif of kinsman redeemer with the other guys that we've already mentioned. And it's a surprising element because he now is clearly regarded as the focus of who is the kinsman redeemer in this picture. This, he's the one who's gonna restore life that uh, restore hope when hope has had all been lost. He's the one who in Naomi's old age is going to provide for her and, and, and take care of her. He is the answer to this redemption marriage. He becomes the kinsman redeemer of Naomi. He fulfills 
our understanding of the one who, who secures the title to the land and who, who rescues the widow, and he's the one who's building up the name of the dead, restores life in the sustainer. Um, great is the work of this kinsman redeemer. And moreover, the women of the village, they recognize Ruth to Naomi. Um, here's Ruth, who's not only not her flesh and blood, she's not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's one of the hated ones. She's not a genetic daughter. Yet this woman, Ruth, loves Naomi. And as it turns out, Ruth has been a better blessing to Naomi than the blessing of having seven sons. Verse 16. Now these are the generations of um, Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Rather, Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This genealogy um, begins with Perez, the son of Judah, because he is the patriarch of the royal line. He's the one that the scepter is passed through. Um, it ends with the ideal king in, in the Old Testament. It ends with the ideal king, this special recipient of God's grace, who in spite of all of his flaws and his sinful imperfections, his, he exemplified a character which had a heart after God, and that is King David. And the position of Boaz and Obed is in the line of the vital link of the scepter, the kingly scepter being passed on through, uh, through Judah all the way down through David. And then as we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, that this scepter passes all the way from Judah to Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. It, curiously, though, there's, uh, there's, there's only four generations that are listed between uh, Solomon and, let's see, four generations listed between uh, between Solomon and, and David. And that would be really hard to figure out how that actually works because Solomon, you remember, marries uh, Rahab the harlot when they take Jericho. So there's over 300-some years between Solomon and, and David, and there's only four generations listed there. So probably what's happening is that this genealogy is not meant to be exhaustive. It's just meant to highlight some of the notable characters in the genealogy. At any rate, Matthew does the exact same thing. He follows this genealogy when, when he begins his, uh, his genealogy at the beginning to show that the line passes all the way down to Jesus. Of course, the major significance to all that is that we began with Ruth's book saying, in the days of the judges, when it looked like God's covenant was falling apart, when it looked like the people had wandered so far away that God had lost interest in his people, all of that time, Yahweh was preserving for himself a people for his own purposes. All of that time, God was preparing these fresh initiatives demonstrating that covenant love through his continuing work of redemption. And as we look at this Old Testament passage through New Testament eyes, we see that all that God was doing for Ruth and for Boaz, he was accomplishing in the vital link 
the, of the chain that would ultimately lead to Christ. And we see, too, a lot of similarities here with our own lives because we, too, are in desperate need of a Redeemer. We, too, have suffered, as the Jews did at this time, from the absence of a king. Only in our case, we have an absence of a king because we have usurped his throne and placed ourselves on it. And we suffer the consequence of that traitorous action of taking the throne which belongs to Christ and putting ourselves on it. And because of that, we are desperately in need of a redeemer who will save us from the deprivation of the loss of our inheritance and the consequence of our sinful rebellion. And like them, we too are completely unable to save ourselves. We need not only a, a redeemer, but we need a kinsman redeemer. We are totally unable to rescue ourselves. But the good news is that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Now understand this. It was through his incarnation, when God took on flesh and became human, that he became our kinsman. And it was through his death on the cross that he became our redeemer. He becomes our kinsman redeemer. All of our fundamental human needs and all of our problems find the solution on the cross of Jesus Christ and in his glorious resurrection. It kind of gives new meaning to that song that we just sang that was written in 1977 by Keith Green. There is a redeemer, Jesus Christ, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, holy one. Thank you, O oh my father, for giving us your son and leaving your spirit till the work on earth was done. God was never in any doubt about what he was doing. It, it looked as if God had made himself absent from the scene. And God was never in any doubt with how he was controlling the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz for the development of his godly line that would one day lead to David and then ultimately to Jesus Christ. There's never a shadow of a doubt that God was doing his purposes even when people could not see that. And see, that's a Reminder to us, once again, that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Because which one of us doesn't make the same mistake that Naomi and Ruth would have made when we try to judge what God is doing and how God is involved in the entire function of the universe based on what we feel in our lives right now? That if God's not doing what we want him to and resolving the problems that we find ourselves in, then God's no longer interested in us. Or perhaps... We have sinned so grievously that it's, God is not interested in reconciling with us again. Or perhaps God is no longer working out all things for the good of those who love him. And we base that completely on our own impression on what we think God is doing. And my life right now is if I'm the center of the entire working of the universe. We, have, we can never limit God's purposes as if he's just doing one thing with one person at one time and in one place. We so often interpret what God is doing in his great redemptive purposes by what's happening right now and right here with me. And sometimes we can be so 
deeply puzzled by our circumstances of life and we wonder, what's God doing? You know, doesn't he realize what I'm going through? And too frequently we focus God's attention on us as if the answer to everything that God's doing right now in everybody's life throughout all time and in all place is based on what's happening in my life right now as if we were the central key of interpreting God's plan for the, for the whole universe. Let me tell you that God is ultimately and completely and intimately aware of your deep needs and welfare. But the, his providential purposes, while they include me, don't center on me as though what he's doing in me could be isolated from what he's doing in everybody else's life. God is at work in your life, but he's also at work with the other 150, 200 of us in this room as he is at work with the rest of the planet right now. God's purposes crisscross our lives. They cross-fertilize one another one believer and another believer. He's simultaneously and contemporaneously doing several things at one time. What do you know? He could do that. He's God. You remember how the elders had earlier prayed for this very unlikely marriage and they compared it to the great marriages in the past. What were they doing? They were acknowledging that what took place centuries ago was part of God's purpose and plan for what we're experiencing right now and recognizing that God's purposes and plans go well beyond our lifetime. That these people that are existing now are just a link in a great chain of redemption. And God is yet weaving together for his ultimate sovereign purposes different human lives with different experiences. Naomi and Ruth experienced great loss, great loneliness, and yet God was doing something much bigger than they could possibly imagine in their own lifetime. And that's why the story ends with this family tree. And there's a broad general lesson for us to be learned here that what may be taking place in our lives could happen, be happening well beyond the scope of our lives. The struggles that you're going through, the deprivations that you've experienced, and the lack of prayer answers that you're having, perhaps so much more is happening than your perception. Perhaps what's happening in your life that you can't sort out, that seems so untidy, that you wonder where is God in all this, perhaps it's not about you. Perhaps it's about people that are tangential to you or, or other people in your family. Perhaps it's about the benefit of people who aren't even born yet. And you are experiencing these struggles and you're not the object. That's why life can seem so untidy at times. And that's why there can seem like there's so many loose ends because the tapestry's not complete. And the tapestry that's taking place, thank you, Michael, you're only seeing the back of it. And it looks like a bunch of knots and nonsense. God is at work all the time, and he's weaving in these beautiful textures and colors on the front side that you don't see. And your life is part of that tapestry, but it's not the whole thing. Your life may, may seem insignificant. There may be... No explanation for the events that are taking place in your life, especially your struggles and your disappointment. But what if it's not about you? Could it be 
possible that you're not the end of it all, that you're not the star of the show? Could it be that your life is just another significant link in the chain? Or, or, I could be wrong. Maybe you are the hero of the story. You just don't know it. I mean, heroes seldom, if ever, know it at the time. You know, like the, the men of Chernobyl who went on that suicide mission to open those valves in their heavily radiated water, or like Boaz who marries a foreigner. There's nothing in it for him. Or for Jesus who yields his life and there's no benefit to him. Why does he do it? Entirely for our benefit, not for his own. These all were able to see the significance of the events of their life that they went well beyond their personal lives, well beyond their personal benefits. And we would do well to remember and to be grateful for the sacrifices that have been made and then to properly view ourselves in the process of redemptive history. Let's, let's pray. Thank you for this book of Ruth and the amazing reminder of the kinsman redeemer. How we see that motif replayed over and over through scripture and through the life of Christ Jesus who is our kinsman redeemer. Thank you for the reminder as we look at these Old Testament books that though they happened thousands of years ago, there are critical, important links, but only links in the great plan of redemption. And the reminder, too, that uh, perhaps we are not the end goal of redemptive history. Perhaps our lives, too, are just links, significant links, important links, but just links in your redemptive purpose. But Lord, thank you that you have included us. Thank you that our names are written down in the book of life. Thank you that we can also play a part in your purposes. And so as a consequence, Lord Jesus, we welcome whatever you decide to bring into our lives, even struggles and hardships, sickness, death, loss, if the purposes in doing so advance your kingdom or they save someone else, it is not too great a price to pay and is not too great for you to ask of us. Help us to have eyes of faith and not just simply see ourselves as the end. May you be glorified in this church and in our lives as we praise you through the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.